Is your retirement planning deeply flawed? This is Retirement Revealed, where Jeremy Kyle and his guests guide you towards making smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions. Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into retirement income. Today, we're talking with David Blanchett about the seven flaws of modern financial planning. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I've just got to start out asking, uh, you say modern financial planning, uh, there's some flaws there, but a lot of it's based on modern portfolio theory, which won a Nobel Prize. How can you say these Nobel Prize winners are flawed? So I don't, you know, it's funny, like, so modern portfolio theory for the listeners out there, you know, it really was this was this early theory by uh, Harry Markowitz that talks about the value of diversification. Um, there is there is a you know like there is solid truth to that diversification wins right but I think some of the the, the problems aren't with modern portfolio theory it's how people apply it um, one of the biggest things that 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 I think people get wrong is the fact that we, you know we, we can't predict the future right there's there's this thing called estimation error in all of our forecasts and I think that too often um, the inputs advisors use in tools like mean variance optimization, modern portfolio theory, um, don't end up reflecting reality. And that can lead to kind of poor choices around portfolio management. So I, I, I think that the actual core theory is really good. It's more of the application that a lot of folks get wrong. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'd agree with you. I, I've heard someone speak before at his book, a few of his books, Moshe Malevsky, mm -hmm. and he says, the math is literally different. So how are you uh, applying if you want to uh, plan out your retirements and start taking money out. Uh, the math is different. Of course, he's a math genius, so he knows that. Uh, but I think that's what you're saying is that the the math is great uh, for certain things, but you're doing something else. Modern financial planning uh, perhaps needs to apply a different math or just approach uh, things differently. Well, but even so, even things like like some mean variance optimization, modern portfolio theory. Um, just as an example, so you know it it treats a portfolio in a vacuum. Um, it totally ignores like what the goal is of the portfolios. So there's actually kind of other extensions of um, of mean variance optimization called things like surplus optimization. I'm not going to get too far into it um, that I think are more applicable for retirees. And so one thing I always say is I, I do think it takes a different set of portfolios for retirement than it does for accumulation. So you could literally have like the exact same risk target, like half stocks and half bonds. But what's in those portfolios, I think should look different for someone who is in and around retirement versus someone who is say, you know, 25 or 30 years old. Yeah. We can already tell your, your passion around this and, and your knowledge around it. Uh, and also your, your wisdom to, uh, not dive so much into mean variance optimization, but knowing that you, you know, all about, uh, about that, just tell me more about, uh, about yourself, what you do, uh, where you work. Sure. So, um, you know, it's funny. I've been interested in like financial advising since I was actually in high school, like financial planning. I had a bunch of internships in college. I was an advisor like way back in the day. So life insurance, um, all these things. But, you know, I don't know why, but like the the concept of financial planning has always, always fascinated me. And I would say over time, I've kind of pivoted more into like a, a research and solutions type role where I'm kind of writing research, doing thought leadership. But I think that for me, it's always been like, how do I, how do we, how do we, whomever, help people make better financial choices. Um, and increasingly, I think it's, it's, it's I'm focused on like, how do we help advisors or larger companies do that? But that's cause, uh, kind of always been my, my driving focus for what I do. Um, right now I work at, um, at PGM. Um, for listeners who don't know, PGM is the asset management company of Prudential. Um, when, and my group specifically is focused on on DC solutions. So um, helping, helping improve 401k plans. 
Yeah. And of course you do a lot of research, which is why you do a lot of these articles like the one I, I found. I've got to give you a, a congratulations because you're, you are very focused on the research and getting things out to advisors. And yet I just talked to just a, two days ago, I uh, had a, a listener, a listener to the podcast. So hello to you listener. I think you'll figure out who I'm talking about. The, the one listener will. Um, but I said, <laughs> he, he called me up. He was interested in buying a lifetime income annuity. And I said, well, what got you interested? He said, because people like David Blanchett said I should. So your, your research and articles, they're having a, a positive effect. You're, you're now on the, uh, the zeitgeist amongst the uh, retirees. <laughs> Well, he's 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 your one or two listeners. He's my one or two retail fan. So I guess we, we found that one perfect overlap, right? Yep. And of course, uh, you shouldn't buy an annuity just because anybody says it, whether you you know someone says you should right. or shouldn't. So I was asking him all kinds of questions about you know what are you supposed to get out of this or what do you want to get out of this, and he was telling me that uh, he just wants all of his monthly baseline expenses guaranteed, and yep. he figured out between he and his wife maxing out Social Security would get them. Uh, mostly there, but there is basically a $20,000 a year difference. So he just wanted to make sure uh, that he would feel a lot more confident retiring if he had that $20,000 a year uh, difference guaranteed coming in from a lifetime income annuity. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've done a lot of work on annuities and, you know, when you say the A word, people kind of like recoil and and they get their antennas up and, you know, I, I view them mostly from like the the strategy perspective. Um, I fully acknowledge there's lots of really bad annuities out there, but there's also lots of bad mutual funds out there, right? So I think that in every product category, there's kind of winners and losers. And when I think about annuities, it, it is that kind of focus on where and how they can provide lifetime income. And I think that, you know, your your client or this this random person has it kind of exactly right. Where when I when I think about where they fit the most, it's just making sure that 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 every American or most Americans have their essential expenditures covered in retirement. I think that 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 when you know that no matter how long you're going to live, you have what you need covered. I think it changes your relationship with your with with how you're going to spend in retirement. So you know even if you're like radically overfunded, you've got more money than you could ever spend. I would contend that behaviorally, um, it could still make a lot of sense to kind of transform some of that money into an annuity. Now, which annuity, how you do it, like that's some complicated stuff. There's no easy answer there, uh, but I, I do, I, I do kind of see the value for them, um, especially um, in those situations. Yeah, uh, of course, you're talking through the, the the gamut of the things you should consider. Uh, a lot of people here. Ken Fisher says, "I hate annuities." Uh, I need to hear. From you in one sentence, how do you feel about annuities? So I, I I like them. So others will say that they love them, but I like it. You know, I'm I'm such a research guy. It's not the answer is always it depends. I like mutual funds. I like ETS. I like annuities. Right? Are annuities oversold? Maybe, but I think that if you asked anyone that does this, a lot more folks should be annuitizing than are. And so I think that there are issues about you know product quality. Um, the fiduciary relationship of individuals who sell them. But like the thing is, is that, you know, I don't care how good the portfolio is, if it's if it's mean, variant, efficient, or if you've got a great advisor, you know, portfolios cannot guarantee longevity protection. And annuities or other similar products like delay claiming social security can. And that's why it's just a it's a more efficient way to create lifetime income. Now, I would never suggest annuitize everything, but to the extent that someone is really interested in having kind of that easy button and knowing that no matter how long they live, they have income for life, I think that's where they can be very valuable. Yeah, I like that. Uh so you would say annuities could be valuable. I like the uh uh I, I like the uh idea behind that. And definitely 
I also like the the maybe are annuities oversold. The answer is maybe. I'm going to say definitely they are under understood, <laughs> uh, right. both by clients that buy them and by I think the oftentimes the advisors that sell them. So uh, yeah, I, mean, I, think, I was going to say one thing. I think what? that the one, one one problem, if we can call it that, with with annuities is that like there's really only like two camps of advisors today. There's those that use them like all the time for everything. And there are those that use them rarely ever, like often. So there's just these two separate camps. It's like it's like a middle school dance. There's just guys and girls, right? So like I think where we need to move as a profession is where it's it's much more blended, and we have a lot of the individuals today who only sell annuities doing a lot of portfolio work. A lot of the advisors that only do portfolios doing annuities because that's the right solution, right? If if I talk to advisors and, and every single one of their clients has an annuity, well, that's not the right answer. But another advisor and none of their clients have an annuity, that's also not the right answer. So like to me, there's this there's this middle ground we haven't met at yet that I think we're moving towards as an industry. Yeah, I like the idea of the the middle ground. And speaking of these binaries, opposite sides of the camp, that's your first flaw in financial planning is that you say it focuses too narrowly on binary probabilities of success. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, so let's 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 not get too too nerdy here. Um, I mean, I want to, but I I don't think your audience would appreciate it. But I think I think when when any when when we do a financial plan, right, we have to relay how you're doing as some kind of metric, right? And and we usually pick numbers because individuals, you know, they can relate to numbers. And and today, one of the most popular ways of doing financial plans is what's called a a Monte Carlo simulation. Okay, and and it it sounds sophisticated. It they can be crazy complicated for like nuclear modeling, da 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 da, whatever. The key is is that in these plans, what we often do is we just say, hey, we don't know what returns are going to be in the future, so we're going to kind of like randomly draw them. So like we could the markets go up ten percent, they go down twenty percent, they go up thirty percent. There's all this randomness, and we do like a, a thousand different runs or trials. So a, you know, like a, a, a thousand fake retirements. Okay. And then what happens is in most of these models is it looks at, you know, in each of those runs or trials, so a, a, a thousand fake retirements, it asks the question, did I accomplish my goal in its entirety? And if I do, it says, it gives you a, a one, it says you, you, you did it, congratulations. But if you don't accomplish your goal, it gives you a zero. And what happens is, is, you, is it, it takes the average of all those runs and that's your success rate. Um, my concern with that is that you could literally fall a dollar short in the 35th year of retirement, and it would tell you that you failed to accomplish your goal because there's no middle ground. There's no concept of if you don't accomplish your goal, what does it mean for your lifestyle? And that's my concern is that this kind of this reliance on on numbers, on quantifying outcomes isn't a bad thing. But what's really important though is that the way we quantify things reflect how individuals feel about things. And I, I worry that that success rates just don't do a very good job, especially for folks who have a lot of guaranteed income or are actually pretty flexible around spending. So um, it can work. Um, the problem is, is that even when it, even when it's like a reasonable number because of a host of things, um, it, it isn't the way that individuals think of outcomes. You know, life is not ones and zeros. It's like 0.95s and 0.7s and 1.2s. And we need, I think is we need to move to tools that better capture that versus just a bunch of zeros and ones. Yeah, I, I like that idea. And I think that's where you got the the second flaw, which is failing to communicate the continuum of outcomes, because truly, if you miss it by a dollar, is that a, is that a failure? So tell me more about that. Well, I mean, so like my, my one example here, let's see if you have a client that walks in the door and um, their goal is I want to have $100,000 a year of income. Okay. 
Um, but then, you know, in retirement, and they have $95,000 of income from Social Security, from an annuity, from whatever else. So they are like, they're in really good shape. Well, like they could, they could literally have a 0% chance of accomplishing that goal. But even if they don't accomplish the goal, they're getting 95% of their target from guaranteed income. And so like, if, if you're not thinking about like, oh, well, if you don't accomplish your goal, this is what it means for your lifestyle. You're not catching that that kind of continuum of outcomes. So you know, to me, you need know, to like show clients, hey, like if things are bad, if you quote unquote fail, what does that look like? And then maybe, you know, evolve things further and, and just don't assume that someone does the same thing every year in retirement for 30 years and not make a change. So I think that, that you know, for better or for worse, a lot of the, the, the financial planning tools that advisors use today haven't really changed much in 20 years. A lot of the core assumptions are the same. But think about how, you know, our, our technology tools have radically changed over the last few decades. A lot of things that you couldn't do in tools 20 years ago, we can do today. We're not trying to do. And so kind of my goal with this research is just to kind of say, hey, um, you know, companies that have these tools, you know, can we not evolve how we think about retirement to help advisors and retirees get better advice? Yeah, I had the uh, the head of Income Lab on. I assume you're familiar with with Income Lab. Tell me how, a, you, how, how you feel about them and and their, I guess, ability to get uh, closer to what, what you're hoping retirement planning tools will do. Sure. Yeah. So I, I know the uh, individuals at Income Lab uh, pretty well. Um, Income Lab is different in that, you know, they're one of the few tools and I, I am just, I, you know, I thought out there like tools are always changing. I, I'm not necessarily, you know, totally abreast of the marketplace. But one thing that they do that others don't do that most tools don't do is they incorporate what are called dynamic adjustments, right? If you think about it, like if you're moving through retirement and, and the markets don't do well, you, you might cut back a little bit right? Like that's kind of intuitive. And, you know, if it keeps doing poorly, you might cut back more because you have to do things like that. Like that's what, that's what you as an advisor would tell a client to do, right? And, and, and it's, it's, it, that's what dynamic modeling is. And the problem is, is that most tools don't do that. They just assume that someone kind of is, is headed towards a cliff, like failure, and they don't make a change at all. And then they just like, they just, they just go over the cliff and they, and they go broke. And that's just not realistic. And so I think one thing is that that, that income lab does that I think is is really good is it provides better perspective on you know if you have to make an adjustment in the future what is the range of possible outcomes that you might have to experience as a retiree that's much more useful than saying hey you have a have a, an eighty percent success rate with with no context on if you have to make a change what that change might be yeah appreciate you you shared that I I had the um the head of Income Lab on, and uh, it was one of my highest listened to episodes. So clearly, uh, not only do you want to have tools that talk about uh, probability success, as in you know what what changes might you make or what what really failures, and you're going to be fine in your example, like you said to, on there. So I'm going to link to that uh, in the show notes sure. that prior uh, podcast in the show notes too. But I've got to ask you a question because we're talking about probabilities of success. Uh, Monte Carlo plannings on this. And I'll tell you, I asked, I asked Wade Fowl, uh, who I, if, if not a friend, he's a colleague, uh, associate of yours. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked him, which is what is wrong with Monte Carlo planning? So to be clear, nothing is wrong with Monte Carlo. Okay. <laughs> Monte Carlo is a mathematical way to think about randomness. What is wrong with Monte Carlo is the way that we humans implement it in our tools. So I'll often hear people say that advisors will say, I don't like Monte Carlo because it assumes returns or uh, follow normal distribution. Uh, unequivocally false, 
right? I, I don't like Monte Carlo because of X. Well, like, like Monte Carlo is like is like computer program. Like a program can do anything, right? The, the problem with Monte Carlo is often the way that advisors and, and companies build tools to relay the implications of uncertain outcomes to investors and individuals. And so I think what we, we need to take issue with is not is not Monte Carlo as a modeling tool, but more of the tools we're using, what's wrong with them? What are you using for your return assumptions? How do you incorporate fees? What do you do about taxes? I think that the problem is is not is not is not Monte Carlo. It's it's the models. And like I mentioned before, I think a lot of the models that we use today use the same assumptions that they did 20 or 30 years ago when you when we literally had these giant computers that couldn't do anything. And so I think I think the key is that is that the Monte Carlo tools that we use today need to evolve. Um, not that we need to kind of like displace or remove Monte Carlo. So I'm not sure how that that jives with Wade's perspective, but that's that's mine. It, so. I, I I should do a, a side by side, and I got a feeling about 99% uh, correlation there, uh, which is which is uh, which is bad for investments. 99% correlation, but but great for for that answer. Uh, what I find wrong with um, it's interesting saying what's wrong with Monte Carlo is like saying what's wrong with gravity. Like it is yeah. there. Uh, you just have to deal with it. And when it comes to Monte Carlo retirement planning, it only randomizes the stock and bond returns. It doesn't randomize uh, when you might retire. Most people retire before they expect to. Uh, it doesn't uh, randomize when you might die. Most people actually live longer than they expect to. It doesn't randomize inflation or uh, healthcare expenses. These are all random things. It only just kind of picks the the one. And I've got, well, got so a it, feeling it, like you it think. can, right? I think the key right, is- like, yeah. like by definition, in in these models, you could have like an infinite number of random variables, right? So, uh, you know, returns are you know are almost always randomized. Inflation is often randomized. There's there's pros and cons there, but you know, I think other things that we could randomize are things to your point, like when you retire, because you retire on early early on average. When do you die? Well, there's randomness there, and so I think that that there are potential benefits to having more random variables like in my models I have like a ton of random variables but you know I also acknowledge that 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 individuals might have a hard time kind of consuming or understanding how to even like seven different random variables in a model and so I think that there is a give and take there especially kind of where we are in the industry so I think that like it's like I I I see posts all the time on like LinkedIn and someone's like I don't like Monte Carlo because of X and I used to just say like, no, it's not Monte Carlo. It's it's you and your model. I've kind of stopped <laughs> doing that because people think it's kind of passive aggressive. But I think the key <laughs> is just saying like, hey, like 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 we can build anything. If you don't like about the tools, you could go out and build one, um, or you can use someone else's. But it's not it's not Monte Carlo. It's the way that we build these tools and then kind of interpret the results. Yeah, perfect. Appreciate that. And you mentioned the randomness of when you die. So that's one of your uh, one of your seven flaws is failing to communicate clearly about mortality and longevity risk. Tell me about that. Well, so like the first thing, you know, it was funny, like life expectancy, it, you know, is how is the average number of years you're going to live at a given age, mm -hmm. right? So like life expectancy for a 65 year old, um, let's just call it 20 to 25 years. Okay. Um, like lifespan at birth is irrelevant for retirement planning, right? You know, what's really important is, is, is calibrating your longevity expectations based upon your situation. Right, the difference in life expectancy for a 65-year-old male who is unhealthy and smoker versus a a healthy non-smoker is like 13 or 14 years, and so I think like to me the key around longevity is just making sure that like other assumptions you use in a plan that it's reasonable 
and it's personalized to the individual in the plan itself. Like, you know, you don't necessarily have to like randomize mortality in a model to do a good job. I think what we need to see more of is advisors asking questions around someone's health to better calibrate what you should use in a financial plan. I actually did a, a research paper that was published a few years ago and looked at, you know, common assumptions that that advisors used in this given financial planning tool. And uh, 70% of the retirement in planning ages was age um, 90 and 20% was age 95. So like 90% of all the outcomes were, were, were 90 or 95 and over 95% were like some multiple of five. It's like you couldn't die at 91, 92, 93, 94, 96. And what, what killed me too was the fact that if you used 90 for a male, you'd think you'd use like 92 for a female, right? Like we all know that females have longer than males on average, but like advisors weren't doing this. Now, again, that was one tool, things could be changing, but I think that like, like that's one of the most important assumptions in a financial plan. We have to do a better job kind of, you know, calibrating that to each individual household so that we can kind of spend more efficiently in retirement. Because I understand you want to have like a margin of error there, but if I'm a an unhealthy smoker, like I could actually spend a little bit more when I first retire than a than a, than a healthy non-smoker because I'm because that person's going to live longer. So the key is calibration, not just using kind of a one number for everyone. It's Jeremy Kyle here, and I know you're listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast because you want to learn more about making great retirement decisions. I've created a free video course for you to do just that. Head over to 5stepretirementplan.com and sign up to receive this video training right in your email inbox. We broke down our 5-step retirement plan into bite-sized videos so you can get started on the retirement, investment, and tax planning you need to create a consistent retirement income. Go to 5stepretirementplan.com. Use the number or spell it out. You'll get there either way. 5stepretirementplan.com. Thanks for listening. And now for the rest of the show. Yeah, that's amazing that uh, what what you're telling me with this idea that 70%, uh, say 90, 20%, say 95, uh, is that saying 90% advisors don't even consider individuals. <laughs> that's what I'm getting well, at. Well, so I, 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 like, I, I like to be really like, you got to caveat it with this was yeah. one tool, you know, yep. one search at a time. And so like, you know, I, I, you know, I always ask this question when doing research, like, you know, how representative of you know, uh, of the whole population is this given sample. And I, I, I'm hoping that things are changing. Like there's no telling, you know, like how, you know, I, I don't have access to every planning tool out there, every assumption yep. being used. Um, but at when I did the research at the time, like that was very disturbing, right? Because yep. like, what was even like the most disturbing thing was, is that advisors would use the same age for both clients. And so if, if, a, if, two, if a client walked in and they were both 65 years old, they would use age 90 for both on average. That's a 25-year retirement period. The odds of the average financial planning client, you know, like having one person live more than 25 years, it's over 70%. So that was like an incredibly inadequate retirement period. But like, you know, like advisors, at least in the tool, didn't seem to realize that. Yeah, this is my favorite topic. And um, I'm going to ask you if I'm doing it right. Uh, and, and specifically more, how can I make it better? I think it might be my favorite retirement topic because uh Moshe Maleski, to name drop him again, it's the number one risk in retirement because it's the great risk multiplier. If you don't live long enough, you don't have enough time to worry about stocks or inflation. But the longer you live, the more likely the market going up and down or inflation or tax law changes can affect uh, affect the rest of your retirement. So Moshe Maleski, uh, I've seen him say it, that it's the number one risk is your your longevity. Another reason might be because I'm officially at my midlife this year because I like to go to longevityillustrator.org and apparently 
with my personalized recommendation, 88 is my life expectancy. I'm turning 44. So this is my year. I'm at my midlife. We'll see uh, how much of a crisis I have uh, on there. But another thing uh, is that when you even get your life expectancy correct, like, okay, I, I did the uh, projection out and I got an official life expectancy, the odds you die at your life expectancy are something like 3%. Like if you're 62 and your life expectancy is 88, the odds that you will die at the age of 88 is something like 3%. So 97% of the time, your life expectancy is wrong. I mean, it's not or it's not, you know, accurately there. So when, when I go through and I'm helping people uh, make their, you know, retirement choices, I go to Longevity Illustrator, ask them the questions, and I get the uh, get the numbers. And then what I do is I take the uh, the the mid-level number, the life expectancy for the person who's projected to die first, and I use that for for them, often the older male. And then for often the younger female, I use not their life expectancy, but the joint life expectancy. So that's another I like uh, you know another thing to keep in mind on there. But I uh, I use the twenty five percent level. Say so let's 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 account yep. for going a little bit extra, uh, but we have to account for it there uh, because now we're accounting for the big risk of what if there's a widowhood and there often is. So let's account account for that. So tell me how I'm doing and what I can do to make it better. Well, first you know you're you're halfway there right now, but every year that you survive, that halfway point yes. is going to move forward, right? So. Yes. You know, when, you know, it, when you turn 50, you, you might be expected to live to, I'm going to make this up like 92. And so the halfway yes. point was actually ended up being like 48 yep. or something. So it's a, <laughs> yeah. a moving target one. Yes. <laughs> actually, the, the, the tool you mentioned is actually is it's, it's probably my favorite online tool because I like, I like the simplicity. Um, I also like the fact it provides information about probabilities. Like most tools out there, you know, only only talk about life expectancy. That, and that's just the average. And that's not necessarily useful because we, what you want to know about is, is, is that tail, right? You know, like what are the odds of me surviving to given ages? And so what that tool does is it really asks the most important questions. Like I've seen some that ask like 60 questions. Like you really don't have to ask someone yeah. 60 questions to get to a reasonable estimate of how long they're going to live. Like I've done research looking at like factors and like, you know, and it really has the biggest factors that drive um, retirement outcomes. Now, um, what, what you talked about is that, okay, so like if you, you go to this tool, um, Longevity Illustrator, I think it's .com, .org, whatever it is, what it gives you is it gives you this kind of like full distribution. Like like this is the chance of you living to age, you know, 80, 85, 90, et cetera. And I think targeting somewhere around like like a 25% chance of outliving your retirement is the right number to use. Now, What's important is like that that actually is going to change in retirement, right? As you move through retirement, as things change, it'll actually get pushed out further. But that's a better way to think about it than kind of just like, you know, oh, I'm going to live, I'm going to live, you know, my life expectancy is, 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 you know, 25 years. I'm going to use that. So I like, I call it like a longevity planning age versus like life expectancy and tools mm -hmm. because you should have this margin of error extra in there, but it shouldn't be too conservative, right? I've seen people that, you know, talk about using like age 110, like as the, as the value for all their clients. I'm like, I'm like that's absurd. Like you know you, what you're what you're doing is the odds of them surviving that long is like less than one percent, and so they're coming to kind of radically underconsume earlier in retirement just for this kind of like totally obscure chance they could still be alive at 110. So I think there is this balance at play where you want to be conservative but not too conservative when thinking about how long retirement might last. Yeah, you just mentioned kind of the uh, the idea of are you saving money for when you're 110. Uh, and that's really about, are you going to actually use it? And uh, tell me more about this idea. What is the retirement smile? 
so I'd heard of this, this, there's this really fun concept of a book, uh, Michael Stein, I think it's called The Prosperous Prime. It talks about um, the go-go, the slow-go, and the no-go years, right? This idea that, that individuals, as they, as they age in retirement, they don't always increase spending by inflation. Um, a very common assumption in financial planning tools is that individuals increase their spending by inflation every year in retirement. So like literally, um, like if inflation's 4%, it assumes that the client calls the advisor and says, "Hey, inflation was exactly four percent last year. I'm going to spend four percent more this year." And 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 what we do see is people do tend to spend more um, on average, but it tends to be less than inflation, right? So it tends to be one or two percent less than inflation every year um, as you move through retirement. So think about like the smile is thinking about how your spending in today's dollars changes over time. So. The downward slope of that curve is is maybe you spending one or two percent less versus inflation a year. So it's actually increasing, like in nominal terms. So inflation's like five percent. Maybe you spend four percent more, but in today's dollars, you're spending less over time. Now, where things get really tricky is the second half of that smile. It's when things tick up, and what what a nuance that people don't often realize with that analysis is 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 the the median person that their spending keeps declining over time. The issue, though, is that some people, when they get into older age, have these have these just significant over-the-top medical expenses, right? Long-term care expenses. And so what happens is, is the average spending for those who live a long time starts to, starts to tick back up. And so what you have is this really this growing dispersion of outcomes when you kind of get to the end of retirement because the odds of, of a health event, of going to long-term care, et cetera, it just explodes into older age. And so while the kind of the, the average quote-unquote person it, it keeps going down. If you look at all people together, the average ticks back up because some of them have these kind of significant, you know, overwhelming um, health expenses. Yeah, it's uh, a couple of things. Uh, first one is if you want to go and see David's retirement smile, go to my YouTube channel, which is uh, Mr. Retirement. You can do that. Uh, but I love the idea that uh, you're right on where you, you start out, you spend more, you spend less, and then it starts going up. Uh, later, which is where you get the the smile from. But I, I just love the idea of the dispersion of outcomes because on average it goes up, but really it's just, uh, it's either one or the other. Like either you're yeah. someone that has no and you keep going down and you spend less or it just goes wildly up. It's like the stock market where on average it goes up, let's call it 10% and argue about it later, but let's call the average stock market return is 10%. And virtually none of the time does it ever go up 10%. It goes right. up 25% or down 15 and it just virtually never actually hits the, the average. So you got to keep that in mind, which is why the the risk part of retirement, what could happen is is so important. Uh, speaking of retirement, how do you, you uh, how do you envision your retirement? So, you know, I, I have no idea. So I, you know, I don't, to be honest, I don't love the word retirement. Um, I want to be financially independent, um, but I don't know that I'll ever technically like truly retire. I just have this like old, old school vision of retirement is like you you stop working and you go golfing and you just like lounge around and don't do anything. So like that is totally not me. But I, I do. I save a lot for financial independence. Right. So I, the thing is, one thing that, that I have come to appreciate is, is, is I don't know who I'm going to be 10 years from now. I don't know who I'm going to be 20 years from now. Right. What I want to have, though, is the means to let that future person, that future me, do what he wants. Like I could keep on working forever. Maybe, you know, I'm 42 or 43, I forget. Um, but maybe like when I eventually get to 65, I say I'm done. I don't I want to, but or I might say, you know what, maybe by then there's like there's like robots that can carry us around and do awesome things. I just I work forever. And so it, it is a balance. You know, I don't want to 
you know, save way too much today. But I, I do want to kind of just acknowledge the fact that that future David might not want to work and he might want to maybe volunteer, do things. And so I, I save a lot for retirement, but it's not really for retirement. It's 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 optionality on how I spend my time in the future. Yeah, I appreciate your idea of of your future self. I used to always say probably for you know the first 15 years of working that I will never retire because I just love it so much. And then now it's I'm saying, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I feel. <laughs> you know, I don't want to presume upon, like you said, a 65 year old Jeremy down the road or who knows, 55 year old Jeremy might, might have a different uh, opinion. Good. Well, I've got one more question for you, David, before that, tell us what's the best way to reach out to you. So, I mean, if you know, I, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, if you're a normal human, um, I get a lot of weird requests. Like, uh, you know, I would at least follow me or connect with me. But um, I would say, if you want to see what I'm up to, um, that is without a doubt the best way to kind of follow me today. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and we'll have uh, links to your LinkedIn, although it'd be easy to, to find you anyways. And of course, if you have, uh, if you want more ideas on how to avoid making big retirement mistakes, go ahead right now and just click that subscribe button. And our final question for you, David, is tell us something about yourself that few people know about. And remember, this podcast is ready to clean. So, okay. So this, we'll have to check back on this. So I, I have a twin and we mentioned this earlier before the, in my entire life, I, we, I, we have been raised thinking that we are fraternal twins. Okay. I, I can't roll my tongue um, and he can. And so like, that's a genetic trait. Trust me. This like, you know, but as it turns out, there are some twins that, that, can't, that, 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 that can't roll their tongues that are in fact identical. So I've always been raised, like he looks just like me, he acts just like me. And so we, we just did a test at Christmas time. So by the time this goes live, um, for anyone that's curious, if you like ping me or maybe I'll weigh in, I, I should know definitively via a DNA test if I am in fact a fraternal or identical twin. So my entire life, I could have been lied to thinking that I was in fact fraternal when I've been identical. So Fun fact, I can let everyone know if, if you're curious, you know, here, hopefully in a few weeks, but that has been, you know, it's been a really interesting thing that, that the development of my life will be happening soon. So, oh, that's interesting. I, I, I saw on your bio that you are a, are a twin. I, I looked them up and uh, you look quite similar. You're both in finance. And so yep. I oh, think yeah. the identical uh, might be winning right now without the, uh, the DNA test. We'll see how that works out. Although yeah. I'm curious because you're a retirement researcher. Uh, my wife's now starting and getting me to watch this uh, new Netflix show where they take identical twins and they they kind of give them two different diets uh, and then kind of see the results on there. So I, I'm thinking as your retirement research, you need to take identical twins and give them two different uh, you know theories, either buy all annuities or buy all stocks or and, and then see how it works out. Well, the, the thing is, so like that's like the, that, that's the best way to test things, right? So you know, we talked about this earlier. Like when when I do research, I just have to acknowledge that like the like the survey I'm doing, the data, something like you know, ha, like how much does this apply to to everyone else out there? And so like like twin studies are fascinating because it can it can control for a lot of the like genetic things that could affect decisions. So you know, unfortunately, like when I'm making you know you know statements about retirees, like, you know, my data isn't nearly as good, but like, that's the kind of research and analysis I think that actually is like, is, is the best out there. So I don't think there'll be any kind of twin studies on my brother and I, but if we're identical, we'll be a much better, better kind of candidate for future studies. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Well, uh, best, uh, best of luck. I won't ask you which you prefer. If you prefer to be fraternal identical, you can keep that one to your, yourself, but, uh, we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find you know? out exactly. Well, thanks for coming on, sharing your, your wisdom. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Thing. Yeah. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast. We believe if you know more about your money, you will feel better about your money and you will make better money decisions. 
This was another great episode of the Retirement Revealed podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to automatically get our latest episodes. If you liked our show and want even more, please give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Please go to retirement-revealed.com to learn more and send us your questions and feedback. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners, Thrivent, or its affiliates. The guests are not affiliated with or endorsed by Thrivent Advisor Network. Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal accounting or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have with your investment planning. Advisory persons of Thriven provide advisory services under a doing business as name or may have their own legal business entities. However, advisory services are engaged exclusively through Thrivent Advisor Network LLC, a registered investment advisor. Kyle Financial Partners and Thrivent Advisor Network LLC are not affiliated companies. Information in this message is for the intended recipients only. Please visit our website, www.kylefp.com, for important disclosures.